I'm not going to do the usual introduction. 52B, everybody. This is Tyler. Let's get into it, shall we? This is Tyler. Oh, this is David. Okay, that's, that's all we'll do. So, all right. So now we're going, uh, continuing with our top tens. And uh, so we're going from number five to one. So, uh, David, you're number five. What do you got for me? Um, rules of the game. Rules of the game. Jean Renoir. <laughs> Feeling a little silly, are you? No, that's how you say his name. Are uh, you saying well, Renoir? Well, no, but uh, <laughs> I think it was the expression. That's the thing. The listeners can't, can't see the expression on your face <laughs> when you said it. But uh, anyway, so um, yeah, rules of the game. I actually just watched that uh, today in preparation. Oh, good. Well, why don't you start talking about it then? Even um, though it's my movie. That's- okay. It's uh, super awesome. I absolutely loved it. Um, David, as you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, Gosford Park. And, of course, uh, I had heard for a long time that Gosford Park owes, I'd say, its existence to uh, Rules of the Game. And uh, upon watching it, I agree. But um, it's just such a it's such a fascinating... I tend to really like movies about the wealthy or the extremely wealthy uh-huh. because, you know, they're made such enemies by society. Like, everyone just like... Oh, screw the rich, man. It's like, well, okay, they may just have more money than you. That doesn't necessarily mean they don't have any problems. They may not have the same problems, but at the same time, they may have some worse problems, you know? And it's just... And just the way that the wealthy are depicted in the rules of the game, it's just... It's fascinating to watch because... Because it's almost as if the rules are the social rules are different from that different for them than it is for us. Like, yeah, in our world, if you, if I found out that my wife was having an affair, that's a huge, that's a huge thing. It could end my marriage. It could end a huge, it could end a chapter of my life. Well, yeah, for the wealthy, if your wife's having an affair, it's just like, Oh, well, that makes me feel better about my affair. You know, it's just, (laughs) but there's no talk of divorce, no talk of separation. It's just something that's accepted, you know, and it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, you know, it should be, it should be noted this, this rules of the game is important for reasons other than having inspired Gosford Park. Right? Well, of course, Although of course. that might be enough. Um, there certainly, uh, uh, and this might come up with my number one film. Uh, there were traditions in playwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, dating back centuries where stories were generally told about the wealthy. Right. And uh, in playwriting and in novels and in movies, uh, a a party at a wealthy person's house... Hell, we already talked about the Philadelphia story. Yeah. A party at a wealthy person's house is uh, a great setting. And and it was used over and over again. It was... uh, Yeah. It it was and to some extent remains a genre of its own. Right. Uh. Rules of the game talked about class in that using that backdrop talked about class in a way that I don't think films had before. Right, right. It, I mean, it used it, you know, film so often just used it, as you said, as just a a backdrop, a setting for, uh uh-oh, a murder, and everyone's a suspect, and, you know, let's bring in... And people are fascinating. Exactly. But, like, this is the first one to just, like... You know, this sounds kind of a, like a silly thing to say, but to really examine them in their natural habitat, you know, um, and just their odd eccentricities and just the way, you know, it's just, 
you look at the movie and you really get the feeling that none of none of these people are happy. They think they they think they know what will make them happy, but invariably it is not what they have now. You yeah. know, they think, oh, if I have this, you know, whether it be a thing or a person, that will make me happy. And so they spend their time trying to get that. And if they do get that, well, then they realize, oh, you know what? Maybe I should go back to my wife. Um, it's just, it just, since the whole idea behind wealth is that you can, you can always get more. Why settle? I mean, chances are the reason you're wealthy, unless you're born into it, the reason you're wealthy is because you were unsatisfied with where you were right now. And so if you've achieved a certain degree of wealth, chances are you're never satisfied with where you are now. I mean, you've yeah. lived with that mentality for so long, you can't get rid of it. You but know, now I'm it right applies to, to people as well. And now I can't remember where the quote came from, but Roger Ebert used this quote in his review of There Will Be Blood. Oh, okay. Someone once said, uh, it's very easy to become rich if becoming rich is the only thing that you want to do in life. Oh, um, that's from Citizen Kane. Uh, Bernstein says that. He, sa- uh, he says something to the effect of, there's no trick to making money if all you want to do is make money. Um, and so uh, now, now these um, these characters aren't all... Uh, and most of them probably aren't at all uh, self-made men. <laughs> right, right. This is old money, but it does have something to say about the type of people who are rich. Yeah. They're not the best people. Right. Uh, or at least that's the thesis of the film. And it was, uh, surprisingly from our contemporary standpoint, very controversial Yeah, at the time. Um, the movie was, was hated and was uh, banned by a lot of people. Wow. Um, the French government tried to keep it uh, under wraps because the war was coming, and they thought it was bad for morale huh. for the French people to see that the uh, the sort of ruling class or whatever were uh, petty and monstrous. Wow. <laughs> uh, and um, the, the Nazis banned it in Germany. It wasn't shown in Germany under Nazi rule. Well, I'm sure the mentality there was just like, a film that is French. No, <laughs> right. thank you. Not here. Um, yeah, uh, I think what is what's interesting is is it's the depiction of these people as bad people, but also that they're okay with it. That they've made their peace with it. You know, they they've just accepted who they are and uh, what they have become or what they have always been. And I think that's what's fascinating to watch. Is it's it's not a movie of people bettering themselves or taking personal journeys. I don't think anybody goes on a personal journey in the film. It's all about the only journey they have is what can they acquire, whether it be a a different mate or, you know, whatever it's, it's all about, you know, there is no such thing as a personal journey because they're just taught that they're right. And, uh, that's all there is to it. So, there's nowhere for them to go emotionally, so it's all just a function of getting what they want. Right. And th- there are also poor people in this movie. Yes, yes. Or, or servants and, yeah. and, and, and the like. Um, not, but the thing is, not all of them are, are positive either. Yeah. It, that's, that's why, I mean, it's not, a, um, it's not just a purely like a didactic right. film. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's much more mature than that, and that's why it's uh, lasted. Yeah. It really is. I was, uh, I had borrowed it from you and it was in my possession for a long time, but I just kept not being, 
you know, I kind of had to be in the, I wanted to be in the mood for it. I didn't want to like throw it in casually and then stop it 20 minutes later because I had something to do or something like that. Uh, so I just sat next to my DVD player for a long time. And then, of course, because of today's podcast, I had to watch it and I was so happy that I did. I mean, it was really just. And especially uh, that it's the Criterion DVD yeah. that I have. And. Again, because of how controversial the film was, a lot of the original negatives were gone. Hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of old prints. It was, it was a hard film to put back together. And I would say that, bravo to the people at Criterion, because oh, yeah. it's gorgeous on that on that DVD. Yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's really that is something that you know people don't really think about. Is uh, on DVD is just like how, how much better picture quality is, but like. I remember the fr- when you and I first I had just bought Citizen Kane on DVD and you and I watched it on my little freaking what 19 inch screen right and even then we we're just like oh wow cuz it was something that we were both very familiar with on VHS muddy VHS. muddy yeah. yeah and then you look at it and you're just like oh my gosh this is astounding and yeah DVD was made for great black and white photography oh definitely so, yeah all right what's your number 6 my number s- Number six or my number five? Yeah, number five. Number five is L.A. Confidential, uh, made in ninety seven. Nineteen ninety seven. And uh, this, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the movies on my list are are like they're like firsts for me or something like that. L.A. Confidential. Sure. By that time, I had seen a lot of uh, a lot of older movies and that kind of thing, and I had kind of almost taken it for granted that the best movies or the really great movies were made before I was born. You know, they yeah. don't make them anymore, you know, and then I, you know, it's just, it's like, oh, I'm, I want to see a good movie. No reason. Why would I look at the new release wall? You know, I'm going to go into the old section. And then I saw LA Confidential. 97 was a good year for me. Cause that's when I really started being like, oh no, they do make good movies now. You just need to look for them, you yeah. know? And so I saw LA Confidential and it just blew me away. I saw it three times in the theater and then. My dad's, and then basically my dad said, oh, if you like that, you like Chinatown. And then that took right. me back into Chinatown. And then that op- opened up my world to uh, film noir. And uh, L.A. Confidential, excuse me. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, L.A. Confidential, it just, uh, I mean, it just does such a good job. You know, a lot of my, a lot of the movies on my top ten are very cynical, but they do have a certain degree of idealism. Um, but the idealism usually is punished in some way, um, whether it be shot through the cheek or whatever. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, it's not treated well. And even the idealism has to compromise. It's like, you know what? It's enough that this bad guy is dead. He got what was coming to him. It's like, but he's still being celebrated as a hero. Like the truth is still being covered up, but it's like, you just got to freaking take what you can get, you know? And uh, and it's just full of characters that are very aware of the compromises that they've made, and they're dealing with that. They're trying to make um, trying to make it better, trying to get whatever kind of redemption they can get. It's too late for full for full redemption, but they'll do what they can. Kevin, it's I'd say it's my favorite Kevin Spacey role because it's just I view him as a very theatrical actor, and sometimes the roles that he gets really lend themselves to that. But often he will play a character that is supposed to be in kind of an everyman or just a schlub, but he's way too witty and clever for that. And it just kind of shows through. But in LA confidential, he is playing a Dean Martin type character who happens to be a cop. 
and he seems as a guy as if he's a guy with no depth and he discovers uh it's like he rediscovers what it means to be a cop and his journey is a really strong one for me you know strangely um the only time i can think of that kevin spacey has been really convincing as more of an everyman is in glengarry glenn ross yeah and even and yeah i'd say so and then like He's really good in American Beauty. He's really great in that. And but the thing is, that's I wouldn't say that's a, a typical everyman because he's no. a guy who ha- is you know is kind of going through a revival in his life. And so I've always said that that Kevin Spacey is an actor who, when he gets a good line, he knows it, and so do you because <laughs> he really will play it up. Um, and you know when he's in when he's in the right role, man. It's great, um, but everybody is, is is amazing. I think uh, one of the unsung heroes of L.A. Confidential is David Strathairn, who oh. plays Pierce Patchett. And oddly enough, I, I where I intern, I had to run a uh, run an errand, and I was driving uh, in Hollywood, and I saw the house, Pierce Patchett's house, oh. and it looks awesome. <laughs> it's one of those things like, mm, I want to live there immediately, oh. um, as opposed to my small apartment. In, Real quick, in before North we move on, I want we were talking about. Um... I, I totally stepped on what you were saying. There, That's all right. Uh, like an asshole. But uh, we were talking about uh, Los Angeles plays itself before. Right. And um, the thing that's pointed out about LA Confidential that is uh, very, a very astute observation, and one of the, one of the things that makes it, it great is that uh, it's a period piece, but the production designer and the filmmakers in general, they understand that uh, a period piece includes everything up to that period. Yes. So what, what yes. year does the movie take place? It must be 53, 54. Uh, but um, uh, unlike some cheesier period pieces where if it takes place in 54, everything in it is from 1954. Right, right. Uh, like the poorer people in that movie clearly lives in, live in houses that were built in the 30s or even before. Right, you right. Know? And there are cars from that are 20, 30 years old in that film. You yeah. Know, or, yeah. Obviously from 1954, 20 or 30 years old. Well, and the, and the cops, I mean, the way they're dressed, like, you know... Bud White wears a suit that wears clothes that's like, uh, those could, those look like they're from the 40s. Yeah. Jack Vincennes, who of course makes TV money as well. Yeah. He's up to date, current, he's got, he's got the right haircut, he's got the right sunglasses, he's got everything. Yeah. And I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a movie where you really do feel, I mean, it's, you know, there are, there's bad period pieces and there's good ones. And the good ones don't often call attention to the fact that they're period pieces. Yeah. You know, I, I discovered a lot of great music from the fifties because of the, that I previously was unaware of because of this movie. Huh. Um, and, uh, you know, because they realized that, Hey, not, it's like there weren't only 10 songs in the fifties. There were <laughs> many, many others. I'd say over a hundred. And so, so yeah, uh, yeah, Curtis Hansen just does a great job, and L.A. Confidential just kind of just opened my eyes, and it's like, oh, they still make good movies these days, and I just have to be on the lookout for them. So, uh, okay, uh, so that's number. That was my number five. Number four for you, David. Uh, another one you recently watched. That's right. Uh, Louise Bunuel's Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Yes. Um. This was kind of you talked about L.A. Confidential being a first for you. This is kind of a first. For me, uh, because I saw it at the Gene Siskel Film Center shortly after I had moved to Chicago, mm-hmm. and it made me realize the benefits of living in a big city and being a film buff. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, because you rarely, uh, you know, occasionally in in St. Louis you would get to see see uh, older stuff, but not like that. Even like the the Tivoli in St. in St. Louis would play like the Crow or something, like yeah. something that is very sort of Gen X, and, right, right, and like uh, uh, only relevant to a certain age group, right. you know. Uh, in a city like Chicago and in Los Angeles, po- possibly even more in Chicago, actually, uh, you can see great stuff from every era all over the city all the yeah. time. And, um, yeah, shortly after I moved to within uh, like a month of moving to Chicago, the Siskel Center did a whole month on Boonwell. And this is the first one of those that I went to see. Uh, I also ended up seeing um, The Criminal Life of Archibaldo de la Cruz. And I think I saw That Obscure Object of Desire, which is almost as good as discreet charm hmm. but uh uh this this film blew me away um it's it's a comedy essentially yeah uh but it's a comedy unlike anything i'd ever seen before because i was not i had i you know i'd taken art classes in middle school i knew what the concept of surrealism yeah uh and i knew it essentially through the works of salvador dali that they show you when you're in middle school art right. class uh it had never occurred to me surrealism on film. It, it, hmm. it, 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 I'd never really thought about it, um, and it's not certainly there's no melting clocks or anything that's that sort of visual surrealism. Right. It's a cerebral surrealism that takes that took me at least completely off guard, and uh, it sort of uh, you know. Um, Unbuckled my seatbelt and <laughs> just sort of drifted along with the movie for the next hmm. hour and forty minutes. Uh, yeah, uh, it's. I watched it today uh, with my wife, and um, what'd she think of it? She she didn't really care for it, but I, I'll say this: she kind of knew she wouldn't going in, and to her credit, she watched it all. Okay. Um, mostly because it is a surreal film, but it's also a lot of the comedy comes from the from absurdity, uh-huh. and my wife is not usually that open to absurdity. Sure. And that's just a fun, you know, it's just a function of her sense of humor. Yeah. And so, um, but that's the thing is like, you know, in reading the description, somebody, you know, somebody commented, it's like, oh, it's almost vaudevillian. It's, it's farcical. And when I think of a farce, I think of fast. I think of just fast moving stuff. Yeah. And so it didn't deliver on that front, but it is still very farcical. And, you know, basically these this group of people just keeps trying to sit down to dinner and through a series of, I would say wacky, but wacky implies fast pace through a series of just very unusual and highly unlikely things. They just never get around to it and their reaction to it. It's like, Oh, well, all right, that's fine. They go into a restaurant and there's nobody there. Like the door is locked, but the restaurant is open. And so the, the people let them in. They're like, oh, okay, well, let's all sit down. Why is there nobody around? This is a little fishy. This restaurant might not be very good. And then the women all go off to go to the bathroom. Oh, there's the there's the owner of the restaurant who is dead <laughs> and laying on a table. And they're like, what is that? They're like, oh, that's the owner. He just died and we're, we're waiting for the paramedics or something <laughs> to come. And uh, they're like, um, should we leave? They're like, no, no, sit down. We'll serve you dinner. And they're like, I think we're going to leave. You know, um, but they don't like think hey that's weird you don't see a corpse uh so casually in a restaurant you know and just the fact that the restaurant still let them in and just it's very absurd stuff but it doesn't hang it doesn't call attention to itself it doesn't have like all these wacky double takes like what it's just like oh hmm 
should we leave? I mean, it's just, you know, and that's, and that's the idea of, that's the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie is they won't put up a lot of fuss when, (laughs) when fucking crazy things happen. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like you said, it's not, it's not, it's not wacky. Yeah. Uh, another word that is right, but seems wrong for the movie is dreamlike. Okay. And obviously there's extended dream sequences in the film. Yeah. Uh, layers of dream sequences. Yeah. Um, Where characters will dream of other characters dreaming. Yeah. Which is (laughs) hilarious to me. But when you say dreamlike, I don't want it to, I don't want you to picture like Wayne and Garth going, right, right, right. Like it turning all gauzy and being that kind of, of dream. It just has that sort of slow moving, like your Gambin dream. Yeah. You know, and things that, don't logically make sense, yeah. uh, but are treated as though they make sense. Yeah, they just, you know, everything is just, everything is treated as something that can happen. And is just, and even, and like, at most it's treated as a mild inconvenience, you know? Yeah. Um, Um, Another reason before we move on uh, that this film, that Boonwell's films are relevant today is he had a fascination with terrorism. hmm. Uh, There's a, there's a, there's a little bit of like terrorist type of stuff. A little in, bit, in yeah. Discreet charm. That obscure object of desire has a huge, a huge part of that story is about is about hmm. terrorism. And he, uh, and this is this is I don't know how to say this without sounding controversial, but he viewed terrorism as art in a way. Hmm. Uh, you know, much like a, a surrealist or or later like a dadaist yeah. w- would view unsettling and you know. To, to make a cheesy pun, uh, exploding people's expectations. Yeah. Um. As as a legitimate art form, I think Bunuel wanted to study terrorism in that in that aspect. Yeah. Um. Because in this movie, there's a character played by Fernando Rey, who I'll say this has the best looking goatee in film. Man, I wish I had his goatee. <laughs> anyway. Um. But uh, he plays an ambassador from a from what may be the worst country to ever exist. Um, but he's in complete denial about it. Um, and uh, and there is like this terrorist faction after him. And you know what? They might be right. Like just they might be right to be after him. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, it takes kind of an interesting view there. I will say this: that in its depiction of in in spite of all the absurdity and stuff. It's depiction of the rich and what it has to say about it. The idea of them, they're always sitting down to dinner but never eating it. There are occasional shots of these six people walking on a road. You don't see where they're coming from. You don't see where they're going. They're just on a road. Like, the, like, like what I was thinking is like, well, what does that say about the rich? And it's just like, these people don't do anything. Yeah. They're just, they're always... In the pro- they're always either about to do something or they're going somewhere, but they never get anywhere. They don't make any real difference. The only time they ever make any kind of definite action, it's to cover their own ass or do something nefarious. Like, yeah, this is the more one-sided condemnation of the rich that rules of the game is not right. But you know what? You may not even realize right away that it's a condemnation yeah. of the rich. I mean, it's not. It doesn't shout it. It just kind of hints at it. By the way, Fernando Ray is also the star of that obscure object of desire, ah. which I am officially recommending to you now. Okay, I have the DVD. You can take it home with you tonight if you All want. All right, then <laughs> you can take it home tonight, <laughs> um, or I can I can watch the French Connection and see him as the villain in that. Right. Um, 
But uh, all right, so that was what number was that? That for was you? my four. That was your number four. My number four, David. I'm ready. It's network. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, uh, network. Uh, and talk about didactic. Yeah, I mean, speaking of something that does. Yeah, we were just talking about. It's like oh, it doesn't hit you over the head with it. It whispers it. Right. Speak. Yeah, network screams it and then punches you. Yeah, um, <laughs> and it's just because you're not listening. Um, that said, it's you know it, it's odd. A lot of people. It's a very heavy movie, um, and yet it is also hilarious frequently. Yeah. Um, I mean, just. And of course, I mean, I could talk about how it really, it was dead on with its uh, prediction of what TV and art in general was going to be in the future. And of course, in the days of reality TV and basic, in general, trash that people gobble up. Uh um, I mean, it's absolutely right. But the reason that I absolutely loved it, I mean, was just, it's got great acting. And some people would, and you know... A lot of it, there's just a lot of yelling in it, and some people would just be like, whatever. But it is possible to be subtle while yelling. I know that sounds strange. But to, conv- you know, and when your character is still is declaring what their feelings are, that happened a lot with Paddy Chayefsky, is he would have these very long monologues in which a character is simply saying, here's how I feel. Right. And it's like, how hard is it to act that? You know, <laughs> it's like, Hmm, the character says he's angry. I think I will act angry. Um, but, man, this cast is so amazing and heartbreaking. And, they and I mean, I'm not a fan of Aaron Sorkin because his characters all sound the same. And they all – and they frequently will say things that don't 100% sound real. They don't sound like a real person would say them. The same can easily be said of Patty Chayefsky. Yeah. And yet somehow this cast really, really sells it. I mean, they really, like, I believe all these people are, are very different. They've all got their own desires. They've all got their own expectations of each other. And they're just all very, they may all speak in this very, as you said, didactic way, but they're all very distinct. I mean, Faye Dunaway is such a strong, fascinating character um, and she's written in the same way as William Holden, but they are so different. Um, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I've always, in a way, uh, found it strange that you like this film as much as I do, actually probably even more yes. than I do. Because you, cause I've known you since we were both in high school. Yeah. And let me just say this. Uh, if you are in high school, and this is to listener, if you're in high school and you like punk rock music, you will fucking love Network. Because that's where I was coming from at the time. And it has that same snotty, almost bratty and brash, yeah. uh, mean, sad, satirical sense of humor that will totally appear appeal to the high school age punk rocker who thinks he knows more than everyone else. Right. Um, <laughs> and Because you weren't like that in high school. And, uh, no. And, and I, I've, I've always wondered, what is it about this movie that... I mean, obviously, you just went into a lot of it. Yeah. But I've, I, I, I've always found it a little amusing that you like the movie so um, much. Well, you know... you were uh, generally more uh, even-minded than I was in high school. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'll, here's what I'll say. Um, I feel like... You, it depends on who you gravitate towards. A punk-minded person is going to love Howard Beale. Yeah. 
possibly a more even-keeled person. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Howard Beale. I took three of his monologues, stringed, you know, strung them together, and did them as, as frequently did them as a monologue in speech and debate competitions to uh, very little reaction. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you know, as the older I get, the more I look at William Holden. Like I loved, I loved Peter Finch, and he's great in it. But now I look at William Holden, the guy who yeah. isn't yelling, but just a guy who, you know, Peter Finch. His his anger comes from a place of deep insanity, um, and the fact that he should, I mean, it's like he has these rants and it's like, Oh, he's making sense. Oh, he just fainted and he faints all the time. I think this is, I think there's something wrong with him. Um, whereas William Holden, he just, I mean, just to look at him is to have your heart broken. I mean, he is a guy who has taken part in an industry that was strong at one point and is just getting weaker and more money oriented and it's eating people up and spitting them out. And, and it's doing the same with Howard Beale, and it's doing the same with him, and he's just exhausted by it. I mean, he gets swept up in it in his affair with with Faye Dunaway, but then you see that scene with his wife, and and you realize, right, yes, okay, this is what real life is like. You can't just go and have this tawdry affair like they do in in movies and in TV. Yeah, it has real life consequences, and it really does hurt people. And so, like. As I get old, I mean, there are different characters you can point to and say that you I, love. I agree, uh, as you get older, because that's probably, at this point, my favorite scene in the movie. Right. You know, and P- Beatrice Strait, who, that's her big scene. She won Supporting Actress. And I, I will say this. Slight tangent. Um, one of the best uh, actors working today, and has ever been working, is Ned Beatty. All right? Uh-huh. And he is in that, he was, he's been nominated, and it was for that movie, for another eight minutes. Long yeah. monologue. Very bombastic. But he's just a – he is – and he's also in Nashville. But he just – he does such a great job in everything that he is in. And he's in a movie with Liev Schreiber called Spring Forward. And oh, both of them are really good. Ned Beatty is amazing. Start looking up stuff with Ned Beatty in it. He may not be in great stuff all the time. Then maybe people will see Shooter. Maybe people will see Shooter. You know, um, he may not always be in the best movie – but he he's like Robert Duvall, who's also in is amazing in network and has some of the best lines. Um, I will say one in just a moment because it's fun to say. Okay. Um, but uh, Ned Beatty just always brings his a game. He's always he's a dependable actor. He can be big as he's required to be in network. He can be incredibly small and realistic as he is in Nashville and all the president's men. He's just a, a great actor, and I think network is what got me to notice him first so what's the Duvall line he is talking about the show and he's like he's like we've got a big fat big titted hit and just like (laughs) and man early Duvall when he's all he doesn't yell so much anymore but man he had that kind of voice yeah where you're you're like oh man he's awesome I also want to say yeah the other thing is probably my favorite scene but the uh uh the um rebel communist leader and her rant about like her ratings and her contract oh yeah is one of the funniest scenes in film yeah and oh and then every once in a while throughout the podcast you've heard david and i knowingly use the phrase crusty but benign right (laughs) that comes from network yeah okay so that's my number four david number three number three 
Black Narcissus. Black Narcissus. Uh, now, among uh, film buffs, um, uh, of which you are one, okay. as am I. Um, <laughs> That's weird. Okay. My, Michael Powell is revered. Is revered yes, yes. Uh, as a director, uh, and rightly so. He's yeah. um, one of the greatest pure cinematic storytellers there has ever been. Yeah. Uh, he, he understood the medium of film innately. Yeah. And... Uh, and he, yeah, his, his, his understanding of, of, of visual storytelling and especially his understanding of technicolor yeah. is something you can't talk about Michael Powell without talking, without talking about because yeah. technicolor made for very bright colors yeah, and generally was used in a very garish way to, yeah. to display that, you know, uh, uh, you know, watch Meet Me in St. Louis. That's all I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Michael Powell and and of course uh, Jack Fisk, I, th- I think, is the cinematographer. Um, they used these bright colors in in emotional and metaphorical ways. Yeah. Uh, and they stand the test of time much better than the you know the skirts in Meet Me in St. Louis. <laughs> um. And so this Black Narcissus is, uh, it's both a highly sexualized film, yeah, and it's a film about nuns. <laughs> yeah, it's you know uh, David and I saw it. We we took a class uh, about Michael Powell, and we saw it. Uh, that's the first time I saw it. It's the only time I've seen it. And honestly, I don't remember a great deal about it. But when I think of it, when I I think of amazing color, and uh, and I just think of a story of repression and just the. Not even just sexual repression, you know. I mean, that's the thing. You know, speaking as a as you know, a, a, I I don't necessarily like the term religious, but I'll use it. Uh-huh. Speaking as a religious person, like you know, there can be a lot of repression, set you know, physically and emotionally. You know, you are expected to talk a certain way, to um, think a certain way, and and that kind of thing. And um, and these, and of course, nuns who are expected their whole life everything is about their faith and so like and they're just going along very contented and then a major temptation comes along yeah uh, uh a strapping man yeah who, the, it's the film takes place uh at a uh, uh a convent in um in india yeah is that right yeah india and uh india is the uh, <laughs> is the brits they're British. It's a British film, as yeah. I would say. Um, and here's another thing. I, I almost wish that I could uh, wait to tell you all this <laughs> until after you've seen the movie, those of you who haven't. Mm-hmm. Shot entirely on a soundstage. And it's that's astounding. If, yeah. you, if you watch it, it looks so much like it's shot on location in India. It's unbelievable. I didn't remember that it was on a soundstage, and I'm astounded now. Yeah, it's... Wow. Um, Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's so they it's it's this uh, convent in this village, and then this guy who's I I guess what would you characterize him as sort of a relief worker or something? But he seems to work solo. I don't yeah, know yeah. what he does, but he's come to this village to help the people, and he is not uh, a Catholic. He's not a religious right. person at all, and he tends to walk around, uh, you know, uh, bare chested and yeah, uh, with glistening muscles and yeah, and. Uh, if anything, he as a person is stylized. You yeah. know, I mean, because of what, like, because of what he represents, he needs to 
absolutely like you know it's not just some guy with a beer gut going up you know it had because of what he represents he has to represent that to the hilt yeah um um and so essentially and it's uh, you know it's like a lot of the uh big films of that of that era it's very subtle it, it doesn't come out and say that all these nuns are uh experiencing sexual hysteria over him <laughs> but that's what's happening yeah um uh, especially this one who uh uh, essentially, who eventually gives in to her hysteria. I don't, right. I don't mean that she sleeps with him, but what she does, uh, and this could only happen really in an in, in an era with with censorship, where where it could be, it could be done this way. And yet, it's there's no other way. There, there's no more perfect way to do it. What she does is she puts on lipstick. Yeah, and that is the key scene in the film. That is. I've talked about there's there's a long if you go to David Lynch's IMDb page and look up quotes there's a long quote where he likens a film to a duck okay All right. a film is like a duck uh, it, it and it, it basically it, it's on the premise that a duck is is uh, aesthetically perfect because it has the beak and the feet which are the same color and tie the whole thing together and then it has this beautiful white and then right. Off center, there is the eye, and that's what the eye of the duck is. What draws your attention? Hmm. Uh, and he says that every film has to have one scene that is the eye of the duck. Hmm. So, the 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 scene in Black Narcissus that is the eye of the duck is just a nun putting on lipstick, and it's couldn't be done without Technicolor. Right, right. B- because the, the simple act of putting on lipstick has never been so sexually charged and metaphorically yeah. uh, rich. Yeah, I mean it's just I mean it's I mean it it's such a it's a testament to the director and the film itself that like something as seemingly innocuous like even even when you are aware aware that oh this person doesn't usually do this kind of thing, you know, or never has done it. Right. Like like it just that that scene is just so charged that like I don't know, just the whole movie is just, I just felt tense while watching it. Now, of yeah. course, that might make people be like, I don't want to be tense when I watch a movie. I'm never seeing this. But like, but like, and it, and like, that's the climax, you know? I mean, and as some, like, I mean, that is a testament to how reined in these characters are, that that is the big explosion yeah. of, uh, <laughs> of free will and yeah, screw the man. Yeah, and and once again, uh, Criterion deserves kudos for oh, yeah. for putting out such a beautiful DVD. Yeah. Uh, all right, number three for you, Twelve Angry Men. That's so, a great movie. Uh, You're talking about the HBO remake with James Gandolfini and Tony Liam Danza. Peterson. Are you Tony kidding Danza. me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I'm talking about the uh, the original Sidney Lumet. I will say this though. Speaking of the uh, HBO remake uh, done by William Friedkin, a perfectly fine director. Yeah. Um, for a long time, let's see, that was 98 or 97. It was right around there. Um, for a long time, when I would say 12 Angry Men, I said I said that that means both. Because the story and the lines are so, so similar. Yeah. That, you know, in my mind at the time, I said, well, it might as well be count as both. And as I have gotten older and as I have studied film more, I mean the original. I mean, yeah. like, if ever, I mean, it, you know... It all takes place. I mean, here's something that wasn't based on a play, but feels like it was because it all takes place in one room. Yeah. And 
It's just characters talking. That's all it is. And yet, Sidney Lumet, through, you know, camera angle and the way the movie is cut, just, I mean, you never, it clips along really fast. I mean, before you know it, it's over. And he manages to find the emotion, you know, the emotional core of each character, of it, of each big scene. Um, the William Friedkin film, it's, you know, it's fine, but he doesn't, he rarely cuts to a close-up. He he pretty much just kind of keeps his camera kind of at a, at a distance and just kind of does a, makes almost a documentary feeling film, which is fine. I mean, that grounds it in reality, but like this movie's about more than just reality. It's about the way characters view reality, you know, because this is all about 11 people seeing things one way and one guy seeing things another. And then as the movie goes on, you realize that everybody sees it through their own personal filter. I mean, you can say that about anything in life, you know, and that's what, to me, what the movie is all about is just trying to realize what your filter is when you look at something and, you know, see what you're bringing to it. Um, and again, just wonderful acting. And Let's, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, say something that you said to me about the two the difference between the the original and the HBO remake. Okay, um, it is one juror that thinks differently than the eleven others. Right, and the original cast Henry Fonda. Yeah, as the one. Yeah, and a bunch of guys that people at that time hadn't really heard of. Right, you know maybe Lee J Cobb a little bit. Yeah, but. Uh, that was that kind of the film that, that put him on the map, Lee J. Cobb. No, no, no. He he was well at that time. He was fairly well known because he had been on the waterfront oh, right. um, and nominated for that. And but and all the other guys. I mean, they'd kind of they'd been working around. They were just you know supporting. I mean, all of them would be good candidates for the you know the idea of the idea of like, hey, it's that guy. Like people may not know them immediately, right? You know, um, but people knew Henry Fonda. People knew Henry Fonda, and people knew, to a lesser extent, Lee J. Cobb. But um, the the remake is, to a certain extent, kind of an all-star. I mean, not huge stars. Right. But it has, like we talked, James, uh, well, James Gandolfini wasn't really anyone then. But, right. Uh, I mean, um, it's got... It's got Tony Danza. Tony Danza, Jack Lennon, George C. Scott, yeah. William Peterson, who at the time, he didn't have CSI, but he was still, you know, well-known. Yeah, he'd been in Manhunter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, it had... Actors that you, I mean, Hume Cronin even was was yeah, recognizable. Yeah, sure. And uh, and but but you were talking about. Uh, you said this to me a while, uh, fairly recently. I feel like um, okay. that that it 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 helps the film to have to. It, it's more of a balance to have a bunch of character actors that you might recognize yeah. and then one star. Right. Um, because I mean, it's it's notable. These characters are never given names. Two of them are at the very end. It's all juror number one, juror number two. Yeah. These guys, I mean, they they are individual characters, but they're also representative of something. Each of them is representative of a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. And so you need to have, you know, rather than say, oh, that's Joseph Sweeney. You know, you have to say, you know, like, you shouldn't, you need to identify these people as their juror number, not as, oh, that's that big actor, you right. know? And the only, and of course, the two most notable actors in the film are the two polar opposites of the issue. There's the, I mean, both of them at some point wind up being the one holdout. You know, Henry Fonda is the one at the beginning, Lee J. Cobb is the one at the end. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a, it's just a, 
an amazing film. And of all the movies on my top 10, well, except my number two, but of all the movies on my top 10, 12 Angry Men is the one that I can put in. I could watch it the minute I finish it. Like I could watch yeah. it, go to the beginning, watch it again. It's just, I never get tired. And that's of why it. it's, it's sort of a progenitor of, um, uh, process crime TV shows. Oh, yeah. You know, Law & Order has been on for uh, 82 seasons for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam Waterston, oddly enough, for 79 of them. And because these sort of, I mean, it's the, this this process. We talked about it with the food thing mm-hmm. last week, that watching a process is fascinating. Yeah. And the process of deducing yeah. uh, is... It, in, in, inherently, uh, not necessarily cinematic, but inherently uh, storytelling ick. Now, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, don't know, but I know what you're saying. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and and I think they understood, like, every every once in a while, the writer of 12 Angry Men will have a character make a declarative statement about himself, whether it be about how many kids he has or something like that. For the most part... The character is revealed to- through their reaction to the evidence or the way they choose to present the evidence. Um, like E.G. Marshall, who's one of my favorite characters in the film, he's the, the guy with the glasses, the very logical guy. And you know he's logical because when it comes time for him to make the points, he says, one, this, uh-huh. two, this. And it's like, you know, like the very fact that he is saying one, two, three, four, and, and is saying the points like that, that tells you everything, almost everything you need to know about who he is. And he's not, he doesn't come out and say, hello, I'm a very, I'm a very logical person. So I, I am thinking of the case (laughs) in these terms. He doesn't need to, you know, you just, you pick up stuff about these characters in the way they present things, not them saying things about themselves. So, all right. So that's my number three. Number two, David. Uh, here's a definite film school movie. All right. Uh, Battleship Potemkin. Battleship Potemkin. The namesake of our show. That's right. Um, (laughs) I've, I've often said, uh, on the show and, uh, in life, um, the one true art form, the thing that makes film its own art form is editing. Yeah. And those of you who have attended film school have probably had it. Uh, drilled into your brain, and rightly so, that the Soviets invented uh, editing as we know it. In, in as sense. we know it, yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, D.W. Griffith's films weren't all one shot. Right. But yeah, obviously there was editing. Oddly but, enough, it would have been more awesome if they were. But I get what you're <laughs> saying, David. Go on. Um, but the idea that the way you place one shot next to another is not just moving the story along. It's right. affecting the story and the the way it's received by the audience. Right. Uh, and so if you've been to film school, they've probably shown you Battleship Potemkin uh, as an example of this. Or at least the baby carriage sequence. Right. Uh, those uh, The Odessa Steps sequence is what it's known right. as. Um, and those of you who haven't seen Battleship Potemkin have probably seen The Untouchables, uh, yeah. which directly referenced it. Um, and so... I was in school when I saw it. Uh, it was part of school. It was part of a class. And I was expecting it to be uh, an academic exercise. Uh, yes. And I immediately, immediately beca- I became so swept up in this film. It's, it's essentially an action movie. Yeah. Uh, and it, 
it's as effective an action movie as almost any other one I've seen. Right. Uh, it's it, it 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 raised my pulse. It had me on the edge of my seat. Uh, and it all. I mean, the Odessa step sequence is the most referenced sequence in the film, and rightly so. It all comes down to that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's so exciting and terrifying and brutal and uh, kinetic. Yeah. Um, that it's it's unforgettable. Like you said, the films on my list are not films you can get out of your mind, and there's no getting the Odessa step sequence out of your mind. Right. I mean, it's it is a very. I mean, it'd be easy to say that it's a visceral film solely because it is a silent film and thus is only visual. But no, like you said, it's if it's not technically an action film, it certainly feels like one. Yeah. I mean, it's just you're you're right there with it every step of the way, and that's why. I mean, it was you know it was a propaganda film, yeah, and that's why it's the most effective kind because. It doesn't feel like one. It feels like any other kind of movie, you know. And um, Eisenstein, who, you know, made a lot of made several other films that were very notable, um, such as Alexander Nevsky and Ivan the Terrible. Um, Alexander Nevsky also highly recommended by me, David Bax. I've only seen clips of it in my Russian and Soviet history class. Um, but uh, yeah, and so it's just I don't know it. There's a reason that it is remembered as an amazing film as opposed to simply, this is a propaganda film. You know, there's a reason that you watch it in film school and not history class. Like, because, you know, because it is, I mean, Orson Welles... Even though it is a depiction of actual events. Right, right. But it's propaganda, so they're not, it's not that faithful. Right. It's it's sort of overcooked. Yeah. (laughs) Odd that you say overcooked because one of my, uh, one of my... Uh, enduring memories of the film is maggots on meat. Oh yeah, ah, part of the reason that the, uh, the, the for those who don't know, I've said for those who don't know eight million times in this episode. Yeah, you're not giving our listeners a lot of credit. Yeah, I'm, I'm an asshole. <laughs> um, so, like Tyler said, it's a propaganda film. It's a it's a Soviet propaganda film. So it's about the uh, lower classes, the working classes, the. Uh, I don't, know, what's, I don't know what the naval term is. They're not infantrymen. What's the... Oh, um... Shoot. Just the, the, the sailors. Yeah, the seamen. Yeah. Um, it's about them revolting against their their leaders. Yeah. Their, their czar, as it were. Mm. Uh, and yeah, one of the things that propels them to do so is that the food on their ship is disgusting and rotten. Yeah. And there are maggots in the meat. It's gross. Um, yeah, Orson Welles, when... Because he was a guy who, you know, had mastery of several different mediums, you know, stage and radio and stuff. And he fully acknowledged that, like, oh. Sewing. Sewing. Oh, my gosh. He always did. He did all the costumes. He, you know, he manufactured the makeup. Anyway, (laughs) um, but he, uh, when it came time for him to make Citizen Kane, when it came... Like, for cinematography, he's like, all right, I'm going to watch Stagecoach many, many times. But when it came time for him to think about editing, he watched Battleship Potemkin many, many times. You know, (laughs) just to understand, like, okay, this is, you know, so he could understand, like, this is having an impact on me. Why? What did he do so that I'm feeling what I'm feeling now? Um, So, all right. I I, I always, uh, maybe it's just uh, fanciful in my head. I like to think that we have young listeners, high school age listeners. Yeah. Because I want to give 
aspiring film buffs the advice that I didn't get. No, uh, yeah, you yeah. know. So if you are uh, a high school age listener, maybe uh, maybe younger, maybe you're just getting into film. What Tyler just said about Orson Welles is exactly the way that you should be approaching film watching. Yes, uh, you should be. Uh, it, this is just my opinion. Some might disagree, but you should be intensely analytical about everything that you watch. Yeah, and not just oh that movie made me feel sad. That movie made me feel happy. Yeah, understand why. And you know, some people will say. Like, oh, well, how can you enjoy a movie if you do that? And it's like, you know what? (laughs) You enjoy it because it gives you the... It equips you to enjoy more things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, people who only think in terms of, that made me happy, that made me sad. Well, that's very limiting, you know? And so, oh, that made me happy. So I will only see things that look like they will make me happy, you know? Whereas people who say, like... That is a brilliantly edited sequence, and it you know, and it had an impact on me that perhaps made me feel a little sad. But it's still an amazing film. They can take joy in a depressing film, and they yeah. can acknowledge that it's depressing, but they can still say this is one of the best movies ever, and, and I still in, love it. This works for all art forms, right? Uh, it, you know, the music of uh, the music of Outcast is far more enjoyable if you. Uh, know a lot about mid sixties Motown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's the same general principle, you know. And I've actually used Battleship Potemkin uh, when talking about like why film knowledge can help w- when appreciating other films. Like I am not a big fan of the Untouchables, but the Odessa, you know, the reference to the Odessa Steps, it's more than simply. You know, it's more than simply, hey, there's this cool sequence. We're going to make reference to it. It's the idea of, I mean, it's it's also meant to evoke the idea behind it, which is in the midst of this war and stuff, innocents are the ones that get affected the most. Yeah. You know, in the case of the Untouchables, it was prohibition and mobsters and that kind of thing. And in the case of uh, Battleship Potemkin, it was, you know, uh, the oppre- oppression and the... Pro- yeah. And so it's like, so... Knowledge of that sequence helps to appreciate something something else aside from that sequence by itself. So, okay, that's your number two. two. All right, my number two is a movie that I have loved since I I was a kid. That is not the only reason that it's on my top ten, but it's a an amazing film that I more than Twelve Angry Men will watch over and over again, and that is Jaws. All right, and you know what? Here's what I said. Moving on. (laughs) Really? No. Okay. Um, here's what. I, well, you know what? With Jaws, you could kind of get away with that. Everyone's seen Jaws, um, and everyone loves Jaws. But you know what? Here's what I will. Here's what I will say. Because you you sent out a message to to high school listeners, um, or budding you know film buffs. Here's what I'll say. And I I know that I have apologized many times for, um, you know the kind of accessibility of my top ten. Here's what I'll say, is that. And we've kind of talked about this before. Don't don't like something because you feel like you should like it. It's fine to respect it, but like yeah. Jaws is my second favorite movie of all time. And sometimes I'm like, you know what? It's a movie about a big shark. <laughs> you know, granted, there's a lot of other things going on, but ultimately, that's what people are going to see when they see, oh, wedged between Twelve Angry Men and Citizen Kane. I'm not ruining anything. Everybody knows it's my favorite movie, but <laughs> wedged between those, you got that shark movie. 
But you know what? It's a great movie. You shouldn't have to apologize for liking a great movie, regardless of if it kicked off summer blockbusters or if it's about a big fish that eats people. Like, if it's a great movie and you love it, don't apologize for it. Don't, you know, it's like for years and years, there were a lot of movies on my top 100 that I put on there. I liked them. They were fine, but they weren't my favorite, but I felt like they should be on my list. And you know what? If you do that, you you're not gonna like hate yourself, but you just you know, if you know why you love something and you can defend why you love it and it's truly good, just own that because but you bring up a good point that I want to mention. You shouldn't okay. You shouldn't condemn something because of what it wrought. Because uh, right, the whole summer blockbuster thing yeah is Jaws's fault. <laughs> yeah, well, not to mention Jaws two, three, and four is Jaws's <laughs> fault. Right. Um. Um. And again, to bring it back to music, there's a lot of shitty music that came from people listening to the Beatles yeah. and, and deciding they wanted to make music. doesn't make yeah. the Beatles any less good. Right. So anyway, so that said, you know, it's just, it's a message that I wish somebody had said to me because you just spend so much time like getting mad at yourself. And I still do it, obviously, but getting mad at yourself for loving something that everybody loves. Cause, and a lot of people in film school especially are going to be like, oh, really? You like that? You know what? Fuck them. Yeah. All right. You like what you like, and if it's good, there's nothing wrong with that. So, Jaws. Wonderful film with what I think is great acting. And that's why it's more than just a typical horror movie. It's because when somebody dies, you care about the fact that they died. Yeah. Um, To this day, I mean, I I love Robert Shaw in that film. And to this day, when, when I watch him die, I'm sad, and my heart is freaking pounding. I know that that big shark is fake. Uh huh. It looks fake. That does, but that's not the issue. The issue is that a character that I believe is real is dying. Yeah, you know that's what I'm responding to, not this fairly fake-looking fish. Um, and so there's that, and like there's a lot of deeper elements. You know, I mean, my dad introduced me to a play that I love called "An Enemy of the People" by Henrik Ibsen. And it's very much the same story. Not by Henry Gibson. Star not of by Nashville. <laughs> not. By- Henrik Ibsen. <laughs> uh, well done, David. Good call. Um, they're like, man, Tyler loves this Henry Gibson guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, guy from Blues Brothers, the <laughs> Illinois Nazi. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, but it has that that mentality of like a guy who uh, has to make a choice. Like, do I do what's best for the public, or do I just kind of look out for my own interests? Because ultimately. If he if Brody like makes a big stink about like we got to close the beaches and he makes a big a big stink he's gonna get fired and then the the mayor and all that they're gonna do what they want anyway so like what does he do and in the fir- and he winds up you know just doing what they want him to do and then he pays the, everybody pays the price and that's why structurally at the end like three guys go out on that boat to stop the shark and. Two of them are way more qualified to stop the shark. Uh-huh. One is a shark hunter. One is a shark expert. One is a guy who hates water. You know, <laughs> it's like, which one? But that's the thing. He's the one that made the decision. He's the one that has to kill that shark, even though he's not qualified to do it. And so it, there's a lot of stuff going on with Jaws. But aside, but you know what? Even without all that, it's just a fun movie with characters that I really care about. All right. Uh, now is the time for my number one film. Yeah. Uh, Tyler's done a lot of apologizing. I'm going to do a little bit of it here. Uh, or I'm just going to do a little bit of qualifying. Okay. Qualifying, that's fine. Yeah, this is our favorite films. 
not the best films. Right. So the film that means more to me than any other film is the Coen Brothers' Barton Fink. Barton Fink. Uh, Show us the life of the mind, David. Tell us about Barton <laughs> Fink. Pointing to my head, this is my uniform. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so Tyler talked about LA Confidential being a, uh, an awakening type of moment. Yeah. Barton Fink was that times a million for me. Uh, uh, like we talked about with Jet with Josh Fadum, uh, the grocery store video counter yeah. <laughs> was the film school of my youth. Yep. And I would just walk in my, you know, uh, my mom would be like, don't get new releases are too expensive. You can get more for longer if you just get the older ones. <laughs> so that's what I did. I just, and I would just walk up and down and not think about, you know, what my friends had talked about or, 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 you know, what I'd seen on TV or something like that. Just looking at covers. And I, uh, even at a, fairly young age this is probably middle school uh i liked roseanne uh, yeah and i liked john goodman and i saw john goodman making a funny face on the cover of barton fink yeah and i was like holding holding up his tie (laughs) yeah Uh, i was like oh this looks funny and then holy shit it was uh it it was uh it was like i had gone through the uh the 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 stargate (laughs) (laughs) um uh it's i mean and, and you know it's a film about uh, in 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 a way, it's one of his aspects. It's a film about filmmaking, yeah, uh, or at least about the creative process, you know, yeah. of uh, of making a story, um, and that those sorts of things always speak to me. That's just a personal preference of mine. I love films about films, right? Um, so uh, that that's that's what Barton Fink means to me. Okay. What well, what about you? Uh, yeah, uh, I. You know, it's weird when when I think of like some of my favorite movies, I don't know how the hell I stumbled on them. Like, how did I find Barton Fink? Like, I had nothing against John Goodman. Yeah, you know, and I just and yet for some reason I just I'm like, hey, why not? I didn't. Coen Brothers weren't even like a big draw for me when I saw it. Yeah, and so I just kind of threw it in, and yeah, I had no idea what to expect, and that is one of the movies that I watched it. Realized I had it another day. Watched it again uh-huh. because it's just so. It's very funny. It was in the drama section of video update, uh. but uh, it's insanely funny. And one of my and of course John Goodman, great acting all around. John Goodman does a great job, but freaking oh now I don't even remember his name. Michael Lerner yeah. as uh, Lipnick is <laughs> am- is amazing. He was nominated for an Oscar for that, and very rightfully so. I mean, it's just. He's Who won ever- that year? Because wasn't he kind of favored to win? He was. Uh, freaking Jack Palance won. Oh, right. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's such a funny and surreal movie. And as I said, sur- you know, surrealism doesn't usually appeal to me. But if it has a, an emotional core that I can relate to, I'm right there. Uh-huh. And and there was that emotional core. And oddly enough, it wasn't the character of Barton Fink. It was Charlie Meadows that uh-huh. got me. Yeah, like that scene well, he's, where I mean, he's uh, in in typically postmodern, uh, somewhat nihilistic Cohen fashion. Yeah, uh, he is supposed to represent the viewer. Yeah, in a way, he's supposed to represent the common man. Yeah, because Barton Barton Fink, the character Barton Fink, is played by John Turturro, is always writing about, or always talking about writing about the common man, representing yeah. the common man. Uh, and yet, when he's confronted with one, yeah, all he does is talk down to him and ignore him, right? Which is, uh, you know, uh, the 
you know, when John Goodman finally at the end loses it and bellows at him because you don't listen. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the key to his character. That's 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 who he is. He's got his head up, uh, Barton Fink, I mean, has yeah. his head up his own ass. Yeah. Uh, and thinks that he uh, is the saving grace of the common man. Right. Uh, whereas, in reality, the common man will destroy him. Yeah. I mean, there are, he frequently, uh, he'll be like, he'll be like, you know, Charlie, I envy you. And you realize, no, he doesn't. Yeah. He, you know... He thinks it's a romantic notion to him to envy, exactly to envy him. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, in reality, he probably pities him. You know, yeah. uh, but not it's, in a good way. Uh, it's there's another film about filmmaking that I love called Shadow of the Vampire. Oh yeah, uh, and that it has has very similar themes because that's essentially about a guy who's trying to capture something true mm-hmm. and uh, something real, and so he makes a film starring a real vampire. Yeah, the vampire represents truth. Yeah, in that film, and of course the vampire, i.e., truth, uh, is much bigger and meaner and more unwieldy than any artist could ever right. uh, condescend to yeah. capture on film. And that's the same thing that happens with Barton Fink. He can't, he can't capture what Charlie Meadows and, by extension, the common person is all about. Yeah, it's 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 too big and it's uh, it's it's much deeper than than his uh, than. Barton thinks platitudes give it credit for. Yeah, and his romantic notions, because it's like, yeah, reality or, you know, the common man, whatever whatever it is you're romanticizing, it always has a very negative side to it that is yeah. not quite so romantic. Uh, all right, so my number one, I've said it many times, it's not a surprise, Citizen Kane, uh, and I won't even spend that much time on it because we got something else to get to, but, like, yeah, uh, it's... It's an amazing, you know, every once in a while, I, I've said this before, I think, every once in a while I'll think, like, do I really love Citizen Kane that much? Like, am I just saying it? And then I watch it, and I'm like, I need to tell myself to shut up, because it <laughs> yeah. it astounds me every single time. It is a perf. I mean, I, I could talk about how the movie is just a perfect blend of every aspect of film. Um, yeah, it is that. But, but I thought you were going to say it's a it's a perfect film. And in a way, it's not. Like you talked about no. at the top of episode A here, yeah. uh, it's one of those films that's that's too big and is n- that you're never quite sure what it, what it is. Yeah. You know, just last year there there will be blood is yeah. very much in the same in the same category. It's it's uh it's an imperfect film. Whereas uh, most things that the Coen brothers make are perfect because they're perfect yeah. filmmakers and they're very meticulous. Yeah. Uh, and certainly there's a lot of meticulousness in, in Citizen Kane, yeah. but it's in, in service of something that you're not even sure the filmmaker understands. And that's where the best films come from. Absolutely. And, you know, and I've, this is kind of where I, I respond so much to the story I've talked about before, like just the idea of responding to very American themes. And this is a very American themed film. I mean, when, uh, when uh, Herman Mankiewicz wrote it, it was called American. That was the name of it. Yeah. And, and it's just, and so it's all about the acquisition of wealth and how that's the worst, that could be the worst thing that ever happens to you. Um, but it's just, it's about so many, so much more. It's about human themes, even more so than American. And it's just, and so I was thinking like, if it wasn't a gorgeous film to look at, if it didn't, you know, if it was, if it had all the, if it had all the uh, visual stylings of a Cassavetes film, but it had the same story, would I still love it? And I would, yeah. because 
even though visually it is gorgeous and all that, and there's plenty to love there, I do love it. Um, the emotional core and the story and the character is what resonates with me. Like there are so many people who are like, Oh, you just love it because everybody else says they love it. I'm like, no, because even if it didn't have some of these other things, it's, but if it retained the story, that's what I love about it. You know, it's not the fact that it is so brilliantly shot, even though that's a big part of it, you know, um, it's, the story and character. That's that's often what it comes down to for me. So well, you talk about it being gorgeous and we talked about watching it on D V D before and that was uh Warner Brothers put out that D V D. Right? Um and we've given we've given a lot of credit to uh to Criterion, but the the team that does the Warner Brothers reissues uh is also amazing. Look yeah. no for uh pick up for those who haven't seen it, the the D V D the Warner Brothers reissue that came out three years ago of uh, Michael Curtiz's 1939 The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn hmm. and tell me that that transfer does not rival anything Criterion has ever done I've never actually seen uh, Robin Hood so I'm, I am I want to oh it's kick ass alright so alright so those so are those our top, are our top 10, 10. Uh, uh, jinx uh, you can't talk the rest of the fucking episode <laughs> um, yes you can okay uh, yeah I, I, ho- I hope you enjoyed them uh, I would love to hear uh, about uh, your top tens. Talk about it in the Facebook group. Absolutely. That seems to be catching on a great deal more than I our think MySpace. I'm going to go ahead and uh, open up a Facebook account just so I can talk with you folks. There you go. Uh, about the Facebook group. Yeah, lots, lots of lots of people are joining. There's just discussions going. So, uh... All right. So, I okay, we, we've been going long, and so we're going to go a little bit longer. I'll try and get through this as quick as I can. Uh, so this is our year-long episode. Uh, I'm sorry. You're long. <laughs> you know, it's it's getting there. It's, <laughs> it's closer to being that than our other episodes. So you yeah. know, so far so good. Um, but no, I, this is our you know one year anniversary. Uh, this is this podcast has turned out better than I even anticipated. Um, you mean more popular? Uh, don't give yourself too much credit. No, well, I mean it's <laughs> you know I I when I first thought of it, I didn't think we'd be having guests. I certainly didn't think we'd be having guests that were people that I admired not that i didn't admire friends but like you know like i didn't think there'd be people that i grew up not grew up but like that i watched on tv and stuff like people you know i just thought if we were gonna have guests at all it'd just be friends and and all that but like a lot of people who have better things to do than our show have been on our show and that's been a lot of fun um but then there have also so there's I've got a list of people here that I want to single out and thank just people who are supported, supporting supportive of, of us and the show, uh, for the last year. So first I want to mention my buddy, Scott Cupper. Okay. Um, he has uh, a very good blog in which he writes some very good, uh, movie reviews. It's Sasquatch Hunter. That's one word. Sasquatchhunter.blogspot.com. So look at that. Uh, Jason Eakin, who uh, we comment uh, we comment on his podcast a lot. It's experts and intermediates. Experts and intermediates. And they've mentioned us a lot. So yes. Thanks. Thanks Jason for that. And, um, and, uh, and theirs is a, their most recent episode uh, is a very strong episode. And uh, just in general, it's a really good podcast. 
Um, it's given us a lot of ideas that uh, we are worried about ripping off, but whatever. We got to do what we got to do. Yeah. Um, and then another friend is Jake Van Kersen, who uh, is just been very uh, supportive from the get-go. Now, there's a lot of people who helped us get the show started. Well, as long as we're talking about just people who are just listeners or fans or friends or whatever. Yeah. Uh, there's a uh, yeah. There's some listeners who have written in often. And yeah, uh, uh, there's Andrew. I don't want to talk about last names because yeah, yeah, that's people. fine. Andrew, Eric. Yeah. Uh, who else? Uh, Garen. Garen. Yeah. yeah. Garen mentioned us on his. Uh, you on know his what? Blog. I'll mention this. Garen also has uh, a, a blog called uh, popculturebeast.blogspot.com. Yeah, check that out. Um, and then uh, the first person who actually gave us like a write up was Ian Brill. Yeah. And uh, that was really amazing to see. And uh, I'm like, wow, somebody actually gives a crap about anything that we're doing. Um, and uh, so he gave, he said very nice things about us. Uh, Joe from cinemaslave.com yeah. uh, has kind of been posting about us at, in various forums. And, and that's been really nice of him. Um, and I will use this next one to get, well, okay, before I get into, get into this, um, Micah. Musio, yeah, Mike Musio uh, helped us tremendously just getting the thing off the ground technically, and yeah, and his his podcast is Hudson and Gaines, and it's great. It's it's funny. It's it's not a weekly thing. It's very irregular. They right, post an episode right. whenever, but it's much more work and time goes into it than to, than into ours. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, it's not just a couple of guys dicking around. It's right. it's a whole character story. Yeah, thing. it's very very funny. Um, and then uh, Ryan. Uh, yeah, Ryan, who um, cleaned up our episodes with the uh, with the buzz in them. Thank yeah. you to Ryan. We have new equipment now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, so, uh, th- special thanks to Paul Goebel, who, along with being on our show, has had us on his show several times, and we've gotten some listeners from his show. And uh, and he's just been a very, he's been very vocal about how he likes us. Him and, and uh, Jim Bruce. Yeah. Uh, they've both been very nice. So let's just run down the guests. Yeah, okay. Paul. Matt, Matt Zaljanan, Mike Schmidt, Wyatt Sinek, Andrew Reed, Aaron Katz, Katz, and Josh Fadum. Josh Fadum, yes. Okay. Uh, and then, I don't Okay. So, Teresa for David, Jen for me. I can say thank you, Teresa, by myself. Okay, go ahead. Thanks, Teresa. All right. And then, yeah, well, it's just, you know, <laughs> we record at David's apartment, so a special thanks to Teresa for just kind of frequently she would seclude herself in the bedroom while we were doing our bullshit out in the living room. And so she's just been very go with the flow. And then my wife has had to deal with me like in the middle of, you know, us just having a nice dinner. I'm like, ah, that was nice. Gotta go. I'll be gone for several hours and you'll be asleep when I get back. So see you later. So they've both been very good sports. Um, and then, uh, and then David, I want to get heavy with you for just one second. Okay. Um, and the listener, um, so David has commented before that, uh, that the podcast was my idea and it was, and you know what? That doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, it's not like, yeah, that's right. I got an idea to, to do a podcast like hundreds of thousands of other people. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, here's what I will say though, is that, uh, along with, aside from the idea and then just coming on and just blathering on about and apologizing for blathering on. <laughs> I feel like I don't, you know, that that's kind of where my contribution stops and occasionally setting up a MySpace page or whatever. But, uh, you know, I've called David the producer of the show and every technical aspect of the show is a function of him. 
the actual name for the show, which I love, <laughs> is came from him. And you know, and along with uh, bringing it every week, uh-huh. it's you know, it's like uh, basically. David has contributed a great deal to the podcast, and he—I can't imagine any. I wouldn't want to co-host this with anybody else. So, oh, thanks, man. That's all I wanted to say. And thanks to you for coming <laughs> up with the idea, and you know, running the uh, MySpace and Facebook page and pages, and yeah, you, you, you do a lot of the interacting with fans that I don't do. <laughs> well, that's true. I know that you I do answer the emails. But. That's true. But you, he has told me, listeners, that uh, he has nothing but scorn for you. So I need to be <laughs> the liaison. Um, Did we leave any, I feel like we left somebody on the thanks. Oh, Pilar. Uh, oh, Pilar Alessandra, who um, has... And Matt. Uh, Matt, the guest. Thank him again, right. along with Pilar, for getting us the space that we record the guest right. episodes at. So, and of so, course, uh, thanks to you, the listeners. Uh the biggest thanks we, of all. Yeah, we realize that uh, we realize that you have a choice uh, <laughs> when finding uh, movie-related podcasts, and we're happy that you chose ours. So, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, uh, we hope that year two is as fun for us as year one was. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Bye.